Hello and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is volume 8, issue 385 on Prey 2017. You can play along with the show. The whole schedule for the rest of volume 8 is on our website at caneandrinse.com, but the next five issues that we're going to uh, that we're going to be putting out are uh, on Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag, then the DJ Hero series, so both games there, then Galaxian series, then the Donkey Kong Country trilogy, and then another series game, Final Fantasy XIII. So lots of series getting uh, getting their moment in the sun or continuing to have their moment in the sun. As I say, the rest of the schedule available on the website, caneandrinse.com. In addition to Kane and Rinse, we also have other podcasts for you to uh, put in your ears. On Wednesdays, it's Sound of Play, discussing video game music. On Thursdays, Play Right is the two Ryans discussing pitches for video games. Then on Fridays, Chris O'Regan hosts The Sausage Factory, where every week he has an interview with another developer about their the game that they're currently working on, about to release, or have just released. After all of that information, let's get to the people who are joining me. James Carter, that's me. In issue 385, I'm joined by John Salmon. Hello, and let's get this out of the way quickly. Definitely not a mimic. <laughs> and also joined by the person who requested this game be covered in volume 8, and it is being covered, so we couldn't do it without him. It's Carl Moon. Hey, everyone. All righty, we're going to tuck into Prey 2017. I think for the first little bit, we're probably going to have to clarify we're talking about Prey 2017, just while we get out of the way how it relates to Prey 2006, which you may have heard a few issues ago on Cane and Rinse. We talked about that game. But for the majority of this podcast, if we say Prey, we're talking about this one. This very game made by Arcane Studios. Um, primarily, I believe, Arcane Austin, although I think the two studios, uh, Austin and Leon, work pretty much in tandem. Known for the Dishonored games in particular. Their publisher for this game and for their games is Bethesda Softworks. Uh, director for this game was Rafael Colantonio, who is one of the founders of Arcane. Notably amongst the credits, I think it's fair to say the writers, worth calling them out, Rafael Colantonio uh, appears in the in a, with a writer credit as well, as does Ricardo Baer, I believe, could be Barry, apologies on pronunciation there, um, who is one of the, the leads at Arcane as well. Um, and also on here, Chris Avalon, who people will know from work on so many series, currently working on Dying Light 2, but previously Fallout games and some of the uh, D&D CRPGs from kind of turn of the century. So well known in the sorts of games that this takes cues from, I think it's fair to say. Another notable credit that's worth calling out because he will be familiar to people who are familiar with Bethesda games, but also who are probably who are listening to this just in general. That's Mick Gordon, who did soundtracks for Wolfenstein The New Order, Wolfenstein The Old Blood, Wolfenstein The New Colossus, and no, most notably, I think it's fair to say, the Doom 2016 soundtrack. Also of note, I think, just quickly saying, this game was made in the Cry Engine. That's notable because both Dishonored games were made in the Unreal Engine, and this one... It seems to be, Game Informer had an interview with Rafael, Rafael Colantonio who said that um, Dishonored, who noted that Dishonored 2's PC performance wasn't particularly highly regarded. And I think there was some suggestion there that maybe the engine switch was to do with making sure that this game flew on PCs. 
So the game was released on PC, PS4 and Xbox One on the 5th of May 2017. Review scores from game rankings have the highest average review on Xbox One at 85.29% and the lowest on PS4 at 77.17%. In terms of response to the game, that's kind of where we have to go because there aren't any, as far as I could find, any official sales figures. I tried looking the usual places I would find sales figures and couldn't find any. The only thing I did find is that it didn't go in at number one on the UK charts, which still kind of release an ordered chart list uh, on a week-by-week basis. Um, didn't go in at number one because Mario Kart 8 DX was released the same week. As was told in the previous issue on Prey 2006, this game had a long and fairly, not tortured, but just uh winding road to release. Um, so... Prey, as was released in 2006, was a game made by Human Head. It was published by 3D Realms. And by 2009, it was announced that Human Head were working on a Prey 2. They had been for some time, possibly since the first game came out. Uh, But shortly after that, still in 2009, ZeniMax picked up Prey 2. They'd already, by this point, purchased its software. um, And there were legal wranglings going on over the Duke Nukem game, which were eventually um, obviously solved when Duke Nukem Forever came out after uh, after 2009. But yes, somewhere in amongst all of that, 3D Realms sold off the Prey 2 or the Prey franchise to to ZeniMax and and they are the the owners of uh, Bethesda. It was within about 18 months of being released. It was still still had a 2012 release date at that point. It was due to follow uh, a character who was an air marshal on CJ Flight 6401, which was the plane that was in Prey that the the um, protagonist of that game, Tommy, walked past at one point, and the, the plane had disappeared alongside the Oklahoma Reservation residents who'd gone missing in that game. And then things kind of went quiet on it. It was cancelled sometime late 2011, early 2012, tough to nail down. A a kind of source of a little bit of what happened is the narrative designer who'd been on the game for the six months prior to it being cancelled at Human Head. Uh, Jason L. Blair, uh, in 2013, put out a series of tweets in response to suggestions that Prey Prey 2 was cancelled because it was essentially just like in demo, tech demo kind of state, he said, nope, this was a fully functioning, fully formed game. Um, he said it was pretty incredible in terms of they thought what they were doing with the game, in terms of the tech, in terms of the way it looked, in terms of the response they were getting from people, um, and said the col- the cancellation of it was political and petty. His quote, political and petty. Um, Pete Hines pushed back against that and uh, and said that, yeah, that just wasn't the case. They weren't happy with where it was at. And and then after that, sh- shortly after that, Prey 2 started being bounced around between different studios under Bethesda. So Obsidian took a look at it. Rebellion ap- apparently were asked and, and turned down the opportunity to work on it. Uh, and then rumour came out that it had moved on to Arcane. That rumour was denied, and then within two weeks, an email leak came out that showed that that was actually the case. It's just bizarre uh, how this how this game ended up at Arcane and ultimately not being Prey 2, because sometime after Arcane started on it, 
they decided to spin up an idea they'd had previously, uh, and it fit the Prey name but had nothing to do with the previous game. So yeah, by December 2016, Game Informer were doing uh, a month of coverage, as they do for several games that are that are coming out. Um, and they, and Arcane said they started from scratch based on an entirely different idea. They had this idea that you would be hunted and needed an enclosed area. They thought a space station was a good fit. And being that you, the protagonist, were the prey in the game, they thought the name fit. So let's get a, a quick piece of forum feedback. Matten's Vice says, I really enjoyed the first Prey for what it was, a daft shooter with a nonchalant story and some alibi puzzle elements. I never knew if the game took itself seriously or not. When I read they were going to release another Prey, after all, I was really looking forward to it, because it ticked many boxes I love in other games, 80s synth soundtrack, horror elements, creepy enemies, etc. Unfortunately, the game didn't use the original idea of Prey. It was an entirely new game, which is fine for itself, but didn't work for me. I found the mission objectives too Bioshock Infinite-esque. The enemy encounters reminded me of Alien Isolation, and just being able to pick up everything, more or less useful, isn't really my cup of tea. I ended up selling my copy of Prey after a few hours of play, and I have no intentions of buying it again or finishing it. Maybe the story has some great plot twists, but I really can't see myself reading all these incredibly boring logs from employees, or dealing with unfair checkpoints and one-hit kills again. If Prey 2006 was dated at its time, Prey 2017 was as well. So I included that here, obviously, because it relates to how this game uh, and and compares to Prey 2006. Uh, but yeah, there were people who had expectations based on Prey 2006 that I guess weren't met by the sound of that. We'll see how much we agreed with Matten's Vice read on Prey 2017. I suspect we may differ slightly. Worth putting a spoiler warning in here, this game is a story-heavy game. We're going to talk a lot about stuff that isn't story, but story kind of feeds into all of it. And there are twists and turns in the story from the off, as Matt and Svi, uh referred to in their their feedback there. So let's talk about our histories. We've heard about the game a little bit about the game's history, um, but we have histories with the game, and we came to it, I'm guessing, in different ways and at different times. Carl, you nominated the game. Would you care to kick us off with how you came to play the game? Okay, so like many people, I followed the history of Prey all the way from the first game in 1995. Uh, bought that game on import when it finally released on Xbox 360. Played through that, really enjoyed it. <laughs> followed through all the countless cancellations of Prey 2 over the years. Um, some I didn't like the look of, some I loved the look of. I was incredibly disappointed when it got canned. I thought it was going to be Prey all over again. Then. 2017 comes around. We finally get our second Prey game in 22 years. Um, <laughs> it's quite a spectacular record. And I picked it up day one, PS4. Uh, this was at the point where Bethesda were no longer giving out review copies, so there was kind of a, a media sure. blackout. Yeah, yeah. No one had actually seen any reviews. Um, a lot of the people that I was talking to in my social circle were saying to hang off. It doesn't look that great. Um, that Bethesda games always drop in price. It'll be, uh, you know, the old, it'll be 20 quid in two weeks' time. Um, mm -hmm. I, that was true. Uh, <laughs> um, and so I got it day one PS4, and I avoided the demo that was released for it. So I kind of went in as blind as I possibly mm -hmm. could, other than knowing that, firstly, I absolutely loved everything that Bethesda seemed to be putting out for quite a while. Yeah. 
I thought Dishonored was fantastic, so I had a lot of confidence in Arcane Studios. And thirdly, it came at a time when I was looking for something to play, and I'm a huge fan of first-person shooters, science fiction, and space. So all the ingredients seemed to be there, so I removed myself to my bedroom, uh, put the game on on the PS4, and I just played away. Um, All social media, complete blackout. And I really, really started to enjoy what I played, but I kept being put off because the PS4 version at its launch had a really quite serious joystick drift issue. And it wasn't as polished as I'd want, but in spite of that and fighting the controls, I continued going through it. John, how about you? How did you come to Prey? Uh, well, I had also played previous Prey game back mm-hmm. not too far after the time it had launched, and I'd been quite up on the trailers, and there, I remember there being little bits of gameplay for what was at that point Prey 2 from back in 2010, 2011 maybe. Mm. Um, and I was keen on that, that I thought that looked kind of cool and enjoyed the previous Prey. Then when they completely switched it, I remember thinking, well, at least, you know, it'd been cancelled. And then they re-announced that something else was coming out called Prey. And I thought, oh, it's not the same thing. I remember yeah. seeing the then trailers of that with the mimics turning into coffee mugs and coffee mugs flying around. And you, your playable character turning into a coffee mug and sort of sneaking through... Um, little gaps in doorways and things as a mug. Um, and I thought, well, it's not the, it's that doesn't look like the original Prey. It doesn't mm. look like what was being called Prey 2 up until fairly recently, but it still looks kind of cool. Um, and I would have bought it. I had every intention of buying it. I don't know if I would have done it at launch because I'm sure we'll cover this at various points. 2017 was an incredibly strong year for video games. There are mm. so many things that were, coming out at that point and had already come out and i think i was stuck into playing probably um still playing resident evil 7 and then breath of the wild had come out and i was definitely playing that at this point so it was one that i would have picked up for sure at some point um until my uh my friend who i account share with on the xbox he bought it pretty much on day one i think a digital copy of it so you know then i didn't have to buy it which is nice to have it sitting there and i did start playing it it wasn't at launch but it was maybe six weeks or so later i guess i had a a bit of a gap in whatever i was doing or wanted to play something else and i started playing it and i remember playing through i think i played it for about 10 or 12 hours over the course of a few days really really liked it but also after 10 or 12 hours was still thinking you know god i feel like i'm i'm in the opening section of this i hadn't i think i hadn't even hit you know the second or third main story objective at that point i was somewhere in maybe just going into the is it psychotropics or psychotronics lab it's really yeah, it's the psychotronics, yeah. i mean it still feels like the beginning of the game at that point and it's still mm-hmm. you're still looking for a guy whose side quest you were given at the very very beginning to go and find this corpse and I thought, God, I'm 12 hours or so into playing mm-hmm. this. I'm st- I am must still be in practically the opening of the game. This game's probably 60 hours long. I don't really have time for it. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember putting it aside for a little bit, and it was one that just sat in the back of my head going, you need to keep playing Prey, you need to go back to Prey, go back to it. And I did dabble around with it a couple more times later on in that year. But then again, as I said, it was a busy year and there were a lot of games going on and I started doing more and more cane and rinsings, and I always had this idea at the back of my head, I need mm. to get back to Prey, but it was one that I wanted to say, well, this is going to be X hours long. 
I can't just fudge around with this and play it for a few hours at a time. It's really in depth. Yeah. The story's really deep. It's you know, after a few months of not playing it, yeah, I might as well have started over. I'd basically forgotten what was going on for the most part. And I just I had this little niggling thing in the back of my head constantly going, you need to get to it, you need to get to it, you've got to put your time aside and do it. Mm-hmm. When can you find the time for it? And that was <laughs> that was then a year later <laughs> when it got it got slapped onto the Canaan Ridge shed, uh, rinse schedule and I thought, oh, well, that's that'll be when I do it then. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't need to worry too much, just do other things. Prey will be there, you can start over and you can play it again and it's going to be a long game, but, you know, you just put your time aside and do it. Mm. And that's pretty much where i found myself over maybe about the last two months or so i got a good jump on this restarted it all completely you know gave up on my original game that i played through the beginning of and i did just sit down and over the course of about two weeks i think you know every day when i got back from work i was just playing prey and i did a really really solid in-depth playthrough and i think it was 42 hours long or something the first time i went through it and i then played through it again to see other story beats and to try out the mm. other sort of ethical path of it and mess around with it and it's most of what i've played for the last probably seven or eight weeks is prey well uh so yeah i, I guess i do have a, a different story from both of of you guys i had played the demo for prey in 2006 but that's all i i played of that game uh didn't particularly grab me and i had other stuff i was playing uh so i moved on uh, from that and that wouldn't have been 2006 that would have been like 2007 or something i would have tried the demo i think the the only reason i was excited for prey 2 as it was the b- bounty hunter in a tangential story from from the original because a lot of podcasts that i listened to were really excited for it and around the time where it, it was revealed that it was cancelled they were really quite upset both for human head but also because the game that they'd heard and seen some really cool things about just wasn't going to happen anymore it seemed but then, a few years later, uh, when it came to sort of 2016, started seeing some of what Prey was going to be. Immersive Sims are kind of catnip for me, whether it's it's Deus Ex or, or the Shock games, which we're going to come to discuss uh, how kind of much of a touchstone those are in a sec. I'm just kind of a sucker for for that sort of stuff. Uh, the the trailers for the game focused a lot on you know that that kind of iconic image of Morgan looking into the mirror and pulling the bloodshot eyelid to the side, and just this notion of not being able to not not having a handle on reality and what per- perception of of the world you've got. The notion that this game was playing with perception and and the the main character was maybe losing grip on reality that appealed to me. Uh, I have to say, I didn't pick it up at launch though. Um, I had heard some of the some of the issues on the PlayStation Four. My PC wasn't really up to playing it, so it was either Xbox One or PlayStation Four. I'd already got a PlayStation Four Pro, and there was no word in the run up to the launch of the Xbox One X of an Xbox One X enhanced patch or anything. So once they sorted out the controller issue, I think there was also a frame pacing issue on the PlayStation 4. That got sorted out uh, and there was some pro enhancements put in there. I can't remember if it was just a frame rate thing or whether there was visuals as well. But there was some enhancement to playing it on PlayStation 4 Pro. So I picked it up in uh, August of 2017 and played through it then. I, I certainly experienced some of what you mentioned, John, with kind of the... I think it's the the pace of my play that I'm inclined to play play at, at the at the opening of this game is 
glacial to say the least and i certainly felt i i was getting through the the missions and the story and just the areas incredibly slowly but i did manage to kind of stick it out i think josh at the time was kind of encouraging me to stick it out carl you definitely were as well and i and i did and just as i went through the game more and more and more kind of fell in love a little bit with it i i definitely have issues with it that we'll get to but it spoke to me in so many ways that i kind of expected it to given the style of game that it is and where its touchstones are so kind of mentioned worth saying the genre of the game first person immersive sim immersive sim tends to mean lots of different mechanics including crafting combat mechanics and traversal mecha- traversal mechanics that are all going to bounce off one another they are going to, uh, from the physics and, and just from, in general, the way the game behaves around you, you're going to get lots of emergent gameplay opportunities. And we'll get into that when we talk gameplay about how things work uh, in, in this game. And the setting is a, a sci-fi horror setting. You are in a space station, aliens are loose, and you are having to try and survive and deal with the alien infestation. We have another piece of community feedback because... As the Baboon Baron says, we need to get some games out of the way as touchstones and as comparisons. Carl, would you care to read out the Baboon Baron's forum feedback, please? Take a drink every time someone mentions a game with shock in the title. You won't make it past the one-hour mark. Wearing its influences not only on its sleeve, but positively tattooed on its wrist, Prayer 2017 was several things all at once. It was brilliant, awful, scary, hilarious, original, derivative, predictable and surprising. I haven't gone through such a spectrum of views on a game since I rage quit then embraced Demon's Souls. First off, it really is a, insert favourite, shock game. From the system shock-esque setting to the plasmid-style neuromods. But the comparison is far deeper, as similar philosophical concepts are at play throughout these games. They also share stellar universe and plot building, multiple play approaches and atmosphere you could cut with a knife. Is that such a bad thing though? If you're old enough to remember when Half-Life was a, quote, doom clone, you might be more forgiving. I see no fault in a Bioshock game by the people who made Dishonored, but perhaps it could have been slightly less obvious. I often in show notes put down a list of influences or touchstones just to give people a feel for where the game's coming from. I think Baboon Baron kind of hit the nail on the head there. I, It's been... So before 2017, it's a long time to go back before you get to System Shock 2. <laughs> I think it's fair, to be honest. I don't think it needed to be less obvious simply because it's not like System Shock 3 was coming out anytime soon. It's still on the way, apparently. But, uh, you know, I think it's fair enough. No one else is making shock games in 2017 so that's kind of where i stand on it but it's undeniable i think including bioshock by the way i think it's definitely fair and i know it's something that we've mentioned several times on the podcast over the numerous years that we've been doing this is that taking influences from other games that are really good is not a bad thing Mm, as long as it's done well and it brings ideas together now system shock 2 is a game that we covered several years ago Mm. um and it's a game that confused me when it first came out and I didn't get it and I felt like I wasn't at the right age when I played that. And then I went back and I played it for the podcast and I fell in love with everything that that game was trying, from resource collection to 
planning trips throughout the space station and and the interaction with characters and the story arc. And that was obviously matched by Bioshock uh, when that was released in mm-hmm. 2007. And then there's just not really been a whole lot of games that have actually been able to match that impact. And it's it's clear from the off that a more system shock than than bioshock is an influence here the game was pitched as a game where you're on the run from a hunter yes but it's a space station setting you're not sure what's going on there are people calling you over um audio chat who you can maybe can trust you maybe can't you know it's all there but something this game very definitely sets up differently right from the off, or at least it gives its own unique aspect to, is there's an alternate history setting here. In one of the first areas you uh, encounter, you go through the history of space travel, and in 1960, it changes. And we are in a different space and time. So the idea is that in 1960, the space race was well underway until Soviet cosmonauts were trying to fix a satellite that had gone offline and they were attacked by a Typhon mimic, a, a, a black four-legged alien um, that kind of burst out of there. And at that point, Russia and the US decided to work together. They pulled their resources. They started moving forward incredibly quickly in terms of space technology, space travel, space station um, building. And that is kind of the background that this game springs from. And I think that's a a really cool alternate history to put us in. It's understandable. It's kind of a single inflection point, but you it gives you history to learn in order to get up to where this game is set in 2035, I think it is, isn't it? Um, So there's a massive span there of like 75 years of of history to kind of build, to, to discover through the game. In my case, I like the way it was stratified in that, so if there's a communication or an audio log, you have to get as part of the story. It'll just autoplay. It's happening. You go into an area, it'll automatically come up, the call will happen, or the audio log will automatically play. Then you've got audio logs that it offers you an on-screen prompt. You can start it if you wish. You can go into the menus and, and kind of pick it out afterwards as well. Those are going to add flavor to individual stories generally. And then with the books or the emails, those are really pretty much... I mean, you can find information that's useful from emails and from notes and books that are around. But for the most part, those are optional. If you want to pick up every book and read it, some of them are going to be fiction books, some of them are going to be history books, some of them are going to be notes that are left that are pertinent to what is happening or was happening very recently on the station. One of the things that really struck me about this that I find a lot of video games have trouble with, just Mm -hmm. I think due to the nature of the medium, is it felt like a very natural world in that you are reading emails from, you know, between different people, one to the other, or group emails, and you find, you know, you find a terminal in an area and you realize, oh, this is such and such from, uh, you know, the Neuromod division. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as email account and you look at their computer and it contains things that would be pertinent to them emails that they've sent to other people and then you know 20 hours later on the other side of the station you find the terminal belonging to the person who the original email was being sent to and you can see that and you see their replies and it's 
so many of those things are fairly incidental. They're very small and not even world building or really even character building. They're just realistic things that you'd expect to see if you had free reign of an office building that everybody had disappeared and you were looking at all their little nonsense things that they've sent <laughs> in there. It, there's a there's a group of people who are messing around with a Nerf gun thing that they've built yep. with the the um, replicator type machines who are all talking about it and sending the um, the it's little fabrication it. plan yeah, yeah. around them yeah. to play it and talking about the rules of their game that they're playing. Um, it just feels so much of it is just sort of boring office stuff and people complaining about I went out on a date with this person from this division and they were boring and it's really incidental, but it makes it feel so much more realistic and fleshed mm. out, especially when you start you start meeting some of the key players and they do play into some of those little stories a bit. There's a character that you meet who was having a relationship with one of the other characters and you never see the other character. They're long since dead, but you you realise that they're together and the one who's still alive mentions it to you briefly and then once you realise, oh, she's talking about this other person, you can then go and see their emails and things and realise, oh, that makes a bit more sense because we now know in the world that these two were a couple. Um, take the first time you go just through the boardroom and you find an office desk um, to a former baseball player who's, you know, he's he's had a few injuries, he's a little older in the uh, a little older and he couldn't compete in um, Major League Baseball in America anymore, so... Mm. Uh, as kind of a feature that got him on the space station, you know, to keep keep morale up high, and you know, <laughs> there's little story books about his time there. And then, about twenty hours after that, I ended up in the living quarters um, or the crew quarters, where you see a bed, and you can get into the higher beds by climbing up a little ladder rung. And then there was just a bed that had pictures of baseball and a signed thing and a baseball glove in there, and it was his name on the side, and it yeah. was the only one that was decorated like that, and it felt like that person had his place on this space station. And you see the little touches like that. Um, there was another person I read who had an email off their kids. And then hours later, I went to the, the crew quarters again. And there's a letter off one of his children on his bed that you can read. Mm. And, you know, everything seems to match up. Everything, yeah. you, you, you go to the restaurant and it feels like there's enough seats to be able to actually have dinner with all the crew that are on there on, like, um, you know, 30-minute windows over a 24-hour period. And, you know, it, it's so rare that you get someone and you go, this could be real. Like, this this actually feels like it's a living thing. And the fact that you can actually go and find all these corpses really makes you think that this was a working facility. Mm. It's, it's silly little details that you realise when you see something like this, how often these things get missed out. I mean, something that yeah. I really noticed was just how many toilets and... Uh, you yes. know, sinks and basins and stuff there are around this. If this was most games, there would be a bathroom with a couple of toilets. Yeah. And you look at it and think, hold on, there's supposed to be 280 people on here. You're going to need a lot more toilets than that. But this nails just those very small details that seem to get overlooked in so many other cases. Another thing, while we're on world design, uh, I think it's worth bringing up. The, um, there was one of the other videos on, on Game Informer um, where they talked about having inspirational you know the the sort of standard in workplaces inspirational quote type posters that go up where it's got yeah. the word and then an explanation under it and a nice picture of a mountain range that's supposed to inspire you to be an awesome human being at work or whatever um they've actually they've made versions of these in arcane but 
each one is an aspect of the game they want to embody and a picture of a game that they think does that well. And then obviously an explanation underneath it. So there's stuff like multiple paths, which obviously it's apparent in an immersive sim you would have multiple paths. Um, Well-integrated puzzles or another one that says say yes to the player, which again, for games with multiple paths and multiple ways of doing things, that's kind of a tenet. The visual style, I think, can be summed up as Art Deco. It's seen most in the posters and signage, but it really is throughout. I mean, that's the area, I think, that most relates to Bioshock in that Art Deco style where the ashtrays and the seats and just everything about the the decor of of the world. But we should also talk about the sound as well because... We're talking about uh, being in different places, being in different spaces and moving between them. If you're outside or in a zero-G environment or if you're in a workspace that has a lot of bare metal around, it, the environment sounds different. It sounds like it sounds muffled when you're in zero-G. It sounds like you're underwater, which is kind of how you'd imagine. Uh, but it sounds quiet. And it sounds silent in that way space kind of would. Mm. Um but then when you're in, say, the hardware labs, there is that echo to things because it's a, a bare space. There's lots of stuff in it, but it's all hard surfaces. And so you get the kind of hollow sounds that comes with that. Whereas when you're in the living quarters or the offices and there's lots more soft, maybe wooden, but often soft furnishings around, it changes the way things sound and helps put you in that space and also helps terrify you because everything creaking around you and making noise just immediately put me on edge at least all the time um i really enjoyed the sound design of this game uh so so much obviously we've mentioned that mick gordon did the music Mm -hmm. and what i found about the the soundtrack that i really appreciate is that it's very listenable and subtle in game but it's also very listenable and detail-oriented out of the game. Mm -hmm. So if you're just listening to it on YouTube or something, listening to it, you do picture where you were or the certain events happening from the experience that you've had playing the game. But when you're playing the game, it adds to the thing. It it never pulls anything away. Nothing ever sounds out of place. And uh, that's the craft and the the sound effects specifically, I think. The Mimic is a wonderful um, clip that it's got the way it moves. And, you know, the when it sees you, it has that sort of slight ringing sound and you find yourself looking around. And of course you don't necessarily always see it no. because of the nature of what a mimic does. And, but you, you hear it moving and you can turn and you're looking sort of, you're spinning sort of 360 degrees round to try and spot where it was. And then as you're turning away, particularly playing with headphones on, you hear it run again. Yeah. yeah. You can hear the and scuttle. then you quickly yeah, look absolutely. again and it, and it's kind of moved and, it really does kind of put you on edge and in the best possible way it it uses all the best tricks of sound and it does them all exceptionally well Mm, i think it's something that um that i see as being a great great success is that the background music in a lot of the areas or i I suppose there's a very sort of soft I, i guess it's something that just plays into the area and you're not really entirely sure in a lot of spaces whether it's actual music that's playing in game or whether it's something in the world there's a lot of areas where there's sort of computer screens and terminals Mm. and things that have little almost sort of advertising jingle elevator style music things going on and that's very much um 
an undercurrent behind all of the sound effects that happen. There's there's tons of little speech dialogue and um you know the vending machines make noises, the operating droids that are everywhere make noises, the turrets talk and you know tell you when they they see typhon material detected and all of that yeah. and power up and power down and there's there are announcements that come over PA systems fairly frequently and all of the then sound effects built into the game that seem to pop up when the enemies appear and you see them and they talk each of the enemies has weird or a lot of the enemies have weird lines of dialogue and speech that are indicative of the fact that they some of them certainly were just a human that was suddenly turned into this thing so Mm -hmm. it all layers over the top of itself and it's i think the the fact that the music blends in so perfectly with everything else is you know just the almost for me the perfect example of of how to do something like this to make it feel like a living world yeah and and what the the so what the music does and i think what carl you were getting at was it uses synth tones that you would kind of associate with sci-fi but it has a rock rhythm to it like specifically it will have rock drums over it and that's the rhythm of the song so it's not a synth soundtrack in the way that you might think of that, not like a No Man's Sky soundtrack, for example. It does still feel like it comes from Mick Gordon and what you would think of as his work on Wolfenstein or Doom. But it it doesn't feel necessarily jarring because of that. Um, and and likewise, the, the soundtrack will dial down a lot of the time when you're in areas and there's not much happening, but then it will ramp up. Sometimes you don't know why it's ramping up necessarily. It doesn't always hit the moment you expect it to, but I think that does help keep, kind of keep it on edge. All right, it's high time we got on to talking about the gameplay, but we're going to do a quick fire three pieces of uh, community feedback. John, I wonder if you would take us through HMS Polio's feedback from the forum. I think I downloaded and played a demo a couple of times, but due to the combination of an incredibly tense atmosphere and unwieldy controls, I didn't last long. On a whim, I bought the full game, overcame my reservations, and really enjoyed my time with it. Arcane's level and environment design is some of the best in the business. The wealth of play options and tools at your disposal allow scenarios to be tackled in a number of fun ways, and I enjoyed the puzzler aspects of trying to optimally stealth through. The NPCs and story are engaging enough, but I don't think anything touched me emotionally. There are pacing issues, and some of the design decisions are questionable. The irritating sticky bombs in the outdoor sections, the reliance on finicky drone enemies, the neuromod inflation for certain skills are all good examples. Uh, Overall, though, the combat weapons and powers are mostly satisfying, and Talos is a marvel of digital engineering. I'll take the next one, which is more from the Baboon Baron, also on the forum, who, following on from the previous uh, part of their post, says, The world building is truly remarkable. Each member of the space station has a unique life, personality and storyline, which is not only a joy to explore, but directly affects gameplay. For example, the neurotic lab tech puts post-its on everything to ensure they're not mimics. So when you find one without a post-it, you've got an advantage. The ditzy secretary has their password stuck under their desk. The drunk engineer has figured out how to replicate drugs illegally. It all builds subtly to what was once a living and breathing world. It's a marvel of storytelling, organic and thought-provoking, giving echoes of gone home of all things. But this storytelling is never in your face if you'd rather run and gun your way through, allowing for a unique experience for each player. Unfortunately, what's most pertinent to me is that, like System Shock, you can get prey wrong. 
I got prey wrong for the first five hours. I didn't look for the right items. I didn't invest my neuromods correctly. And as a result, I got smeared up the windows of Talos 1. Make no mistake, this game drops, drops you into its universe and expects you to pick it up quickly. And if you don't, you will suffer. Enemies will respawn behind you, wreck your day with near one-hit kill attacks or homing attacks, or perhaps what you thought was a bin will in fact rip your face off. It gets very tiring very quickly. I nearly called it because of this quite cruel difficulty curve. But I didn't, and I'm so glad I didn't. I invested a handful of neuromods and changed to a melee approach. A wise decision, as the old 1-2 zap em and smash em proved to work a treat. Only then did the game really find its own. Exciting subplots that weave through each other underpin a subtle moral choice system which leads to what I thought was a clever ending. Graphically, it's Dishonored in Space, which is fine, though the uncanny valley of facial animations does show up as it, is, as it so often does. Prey is also a loud game, with jagged blasts of synth and strings to underpin the surprise and violence of the Typhon. That said, it does also have large swathes of silence, which sometimes works and sometimes adds to the dullness of a long backtrack to fulfil a side quest. I enjoyed my time with Prey, and I would recommend it too, though possibly give a quick guide a glance beforehand. Perhaps there's something to the simulation hypothesis after all. And Carl, would you take Mark Hoog's forum post, please? Prey was shape-shifting up to be my favourite game of 2017 mostly because of its gorgeous level design. Making my way through Talos 1, exploring every nook and cranny, outsmarting the mimics and cheesing my way to off-grid areas using the glue cannon, I experienced a sense of solitude and freedom rarely felt before in games. The moment I floated outside of the station I felt both calm and alone, and looking back at Talos 1 in its entirety filled me with an almost palpable sense of scale. On top of that, I became genuinely interested in the mostly absent crew members and enjoyed learning about their lives, hobbies, their relationships through emails and audio logs. However, the game kind of fell apart in its final act. The combat was never my favourite part of Prey, and I had avoided where I could. Hence, introducing a human adversary late in the game, and giving him an army of annoying, tough combat drones shifted my careful, at times even meditative, experience onto the realm of chaotic tedium. After so many hours of quiet exploration, I suddenly found myself constantly on the run and being shot at, which is also where the long loading screens became a complete buzzkill. It's okay to wait 30 seconds when you've just spent an hour going through crew quarters, but when running from A to B for some fetch quest and having to wait half a minute every 20 seconds, all momentum just flies out of the window into the vastness of space. I still think Prey is a masterpiece in its level design and alternate history narrative, but that final stretch has made me reluctant to ever revisit the game using a different playstyle. I'd only really reconsider it if a next-gen remaster would provide a seamless experience. So, uh, I included all three of those there because they all talk about, I think in every case, the excellent world-building and the atmosphere and, and that kind of thing, but each person had different uh issues just to mention the the um the loading there i i timed it a couple of times today playing on playstation 4 pro and i had loading times of up to 80 seconds occasionally between areas it's it, it is to me pretty bad I, I don't think there's any way around that it doesn't destroy the game but certainly as the pace of the game kind of increases I definitely found myself 
noticing that the uh, noticing that the the loading was kind of stopping me when I just had to to make a, a beeline for somewhere I knew when I knew where I was going, especially. So I thought that was just worth mentioning. Otherwise, I, I also do agree with comments about the 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 combat and the game kind of throwing you in at the deep end. I it took me a while to get a handle on the combat to the point where I was avoiding combat as much as possible. And I'm still, even this week having replayed some of it, I'm still not sure I've I I enjoy that having to spin around looking for the enemy around me and shooting glue at it and missing like nine times out of ten sometimes it feels like. It can be really difficult to get a handle on how to take down incredibly fast-moving enemies when a, a wrench swing or a gunshot might miss it. Um, John, how about how about you? How did the combat come across for for you? Um, I I agree with what you say at the beginning of the game, particularly. I think you feel quite underpowered. Yeah, and you know, it's only there's only a fairly short amount of time mm. where. Uh, it introduces you to things and you start fighting mimics and within within probably 20 minutes of the game starting you come through the uh the the sort of the testing labs and you appear out into a corridor and there's a room in front of you with a whole load of bars and there's a phantom on the other side of the bars and it sort of looks at you and then evaporates away and the uh whatever voices over your intercom at that point says to you something about, oh, you don't want to come up against them. They're really nasty. <laughs> and it it's, still takes quite a while before you ever bump into anything. But it's it's a game where if you follow the critical path and you follow the storyline sort of uh, objectives for the first few areas, you don't really ever come across anything too serious until probably the point where you get well and truly into the hardware labs yeah. But if you're if you're a bit more sort of cocky about things and you realise suddenly that you got that repair ability with the second neuro mod that you picked up, and actually you can go back into the you know, back to the first first little uh, junction that you came to yeah. and you can now you can go up, up that, that gravity lift, you yeah. know, if you didn't already find realise that you could use the glue gun to get out there. Then suddenly you're in an area where you're meeting lots of much tougher enemies. And at that point, you haven't had very many weapon upgrades or probably very many neuro mods or anything. So you can very quickly get out of your debt. But on the other hand, if you if you cheese it a little bit yourself and you you use the you know use the glue gun and you know use some wisely placed mm -hmm. neuro mods in specific abilities early on, you can also find yourself with a pretty much limitless supply of neuro mods within the first few hours of the game. If you can, you know, put up with managing to deal with one or two quite tough enemies to get there and somehow cheese them with, you know, I, I ended up using combinations of throwing um, exploding gas cylinders and sure, pistol yeah, shots yeah. and doing everything I could to try and get rid of this. I think it was a techno path that I came across really super early <laughs> before I'd seen anything else like it. And I managed to cheese my way through that and then got the neuromod fabrication plan and suddenly realized well now i can just i can pump out as many neuromods as i've got the recycled matter for and i can sort of in some ways get as much material as i need to make them so i could have done it you know six or eight hours into the game 
ended up unlocking huge amounts of powers and upgrading all of my weapons and could have gotten pretty powerful and feel like I would have been, you know, on the other side of that breaking the game. But I, I think it's, it teases you with things nicely to start off with. And it gives you, it gives you enough, um, resources and enough weapons and enough confidence to be able to take things down pretty quickly as you start. But then the way that it, it ramps up sort of forces you to also ramp up your own abilities and to try and use some of those cheesy methods. So I think it's, I think it was done in a very subtle way of forcing you to be better in that respect. You you make some really good points there. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned there was about um, cheesing the game or breaking the game. And I feel like the game's actually made to be able to do that. I think the, the approach, the way I described it to a friend is the game never challenges you to be better at it. It challenges you to be smarter about it. And I think that there is a, a, a very fine definition on the way that that works, because one of the things that triggered this was one of the things that you mentioned in the chat specifically, John, about um, using one of the neuro mods and you didn't actually have the ability to have a, a leverage to, to move a box yeah. to get into an area that you wanted to get into. And you said you thought about it for a while. And then the next time you came back through the area, you actually just threw a recycler charge at those boxes. Yeah. And it turned those boxes into matter. And it was kind of like, oh, you know, I, I can actually, I don't need to have the neuro mod to be able to move stuff. Yeah. You can actually do that. Or I want to hack this door, but you kind of know there's going to be another way to go in there. You may have to find a message about it. There may actually be a route around the back through a hatch or over the top through a wall. Um, through mantling some pipes and leaping over and making your way through. like All of this is there. It's about whether or not you want to find it. What's your approach? And you really can take these different approaches through the game. And very, very rarely do games have the ability to maintain this throughout. And I always, every time I got stuck on a puzzle, I would think, what is my best approach for getting through to this? What's the smartest way that I can do this without absolutely annihilating my resource count? Mm. Um, You know, uh, you see certain enemies, you're like, do I want to attack them? Do I want to actually run through this area? Do I actually just want to hide? I can actually sneak. I can spend neuro mods so that they can't hear me. You know, you've got all these different things going through through your head at these these matters. And I think this is going to sound like a lot of hyperbole on the first time that I was... Um, put on the screen of what to upgrade my neuro mods into, which is your standard skill tree approach. And this sounds so interesting, but they all clearly highlight different approaches that you can take to the game. And I actually sat there for five minutes weighing up which approach I yeah. wanted to be based on what I'd actually seen in those previous areas. So um, John's already mentioned that you get through the um, the neuro mod division and you get to the lobby and then you start seeing the hardware labs. And then I decided to finally spend some of these neural mods, and I was like, well, I've seen hackable things, I've seen liftable things, I've seen enemies that I can sneak past. And it's like, which of these approaches do I really want to take? Um, and if you invest, you kind of stick that way for quite a while until you get you know, a, a lot of neural mods, which you absolutely can do. They are there. They're, they're not the most hidden things, but they're not the most obvious things either. Yeah. And th- there is... There is the increase in cost in different areas. So you would look, you've got like four different categories for health upgrade, for example, and the first one's like two, but then four, and then 
six and then eight. So to, to get that one for eight, that's that, that's like a lot of neuro mods yeah. that you're spending. So that's 20 neuro mods just to be able to upgrade that one little bit of yeah. a tree. And I was starting to weigh these, uh, you know, weigh these things up. And it became kind of, I became anxious about what if I choose it wrong. And, you know, we've, we've had that you can actually pray it wrong. And I don't actually think that that's the case. I don't think you can actually pray it wrong. I think you have to stay true to the method that you start with at the start of the game if you want to do it. But you absolutely can succeed in performing in that route. If you want to be stealth, you can be stealth through that game. Uh, and that is a fantastic style. And, you know, it, it clearly it, that is one of the design ethoses that, that Arcane have because it does stick true to what we've seen in Dishonored. But it does it so well um, that I felt like I was, I had to be truly mindful of all my decisions in that game because I wanted to play it smart and you can play this game smart. I mean, you can you can play this however you want, really. You can use some neuro mods, all neuro mods, a combination of. I mean, there's human neuro mods and typhon neuro mods that you find a short way into it. So you can you can go completely down one route or the other, or you can even install absolutely zero neuro mods and still every single section of the game has a a path that you can get through no matter which way you've chosen, it's very possible to do it with, without a single neuromod at all and still manage to do a majority of the side quests and meet a majority of this, the characters who are still alive. So it's it's a testament to how well the the world is built that you really can do anything and everything however you want to. And it's it's also the, the way that it's, you know, things are uh, signposted to you is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's worth mentioning that the first time you come across the glue gun right near the beginning of the game, it's very obvious that the the corpse who's there, who you pick it up from, has been trying to use it to climb up the side of the wall because there's you know there's a big spray of glue up the wall that goes onto the top of a a little, I think it's the little outpost or something next it's to it. That yeah, you can climb station, up yeah, and find the person that he was talking to who mm-hmm. was shouting at him to get up. And if you miss that little bit of environmental storytelling. You know, a couple of hours later when you're in the hardware labs, the game forces you to go down one path where you come up against a huge glass wall in front of you and you're seeing into I think it's you're seeing into a into like the stage of a lecture theatre um, type thing. Theater, yeah. Yeah. And you see a, a human character run through there with a glue gun and use it to do almost exactly what the the person previously had done yeah, he, yeah. he puts a thing up the wall and climbs up it and is chased by a, a phantom or something and it's it points out i mean this is a this glue gun is a weapon that you can use to attack the enemies and you can freeze them in place and do extra damage but it's it's real primary ability beyond that is uh you know as, as a platforming aid mm-hmm. and it, it yeah those things are all very much shown to you in very subtle environmental storytelling type of ways yeah. Yeah, including um, the first time, uh, I think it's the first time most people are going to come upon, uh, there's lots of uh, pipes that are marked as flammable in the game that are clearly transmitting flammable materials. Um, And you come upon a hallway where there are several jets of fire coming out of one of these pipes that would burn you if you walked along. And a bunch of uh, mimics run towards you and all get burned. Right at the beginning of that hallway is a blob of glue on the pipe indicating that yes you can use the glue to block each of the the spurts of flame coming out of there stuff like that it 
there's always it's always showing you and you might not come across that until later but it always gives you an opportunity to learn that at some point if you're being observant or if you're willing to try stuff or as carl says you're just willing to stop and think through how you might be able to use it um on on that note uh heavy mataru from the forum uh, a very short post but makes sense to put it in here uh, because it relates to the glue cannon uh, so heavy mataru says Watching the SG, SGDQ, Summer Games Done Quick, 2019 run of this game was endlessly entertaining. The glue cannon breaks the game in so many ways. The escape pod can be unlocked by clipping in through the bottom of the ship, for example. Um, and yeah, it's it's ways in which the developers would have conceived, but also ways in which the developers probably didn't conceive, but they're willing, that's part of the say yes to the player mantra I mentioned earlier. Willing to give a player a tool and never limit that tool in a way that might make sense for the game's design, but wouldn't make sense for what the player wants to do. Um, I think the thing that um, that also leads it leans into what you're saying about um, needing to think through your approach is each of these weapons is no, sorry, none of these weapons is going to be a one size fits all for every enemy in the game. Like we've heard people say, uh, so glue cannon uh, will you can use that to slow an enemy down, and then you can hit them with a wrench in a kind of Bioshock um, zap them and, and uh, with a one two punch zap them and smash them. I believe someone referred to it as you can do that, but there are going to be enemies where that's not going to be the wisest course of action um, because either the glue won't last long enough or your wrench is just not going to do the, da- the damage. So you do need to. I, I never found I was settling on one particular weapon and one particular combat style. I was always switching around based on what I had ammo for and what the enemy was. Um, for example, the silence pistol I didn't actually use that much. If I wanted to be silent, I tended to use the wrench. And then when I needed to go big, I just pulled the shotgun out after I'd sort of frozen the enemy in place. So I didn't use the silence pistol that much, which is odd for me because I hear silenced in front of a weapon and I just think, right, this is me for the rest of the game. And it, I didn't use it that much. But when it came to the cystoid nests and it releases a load of like this this um, swarm of cystoids around, f- frequently I found the best way to deal with them was just to fire silence pistol shots in because I had loads of that ammo I wasn't using it elsewhere and cause a chain reaction f- to blow them all up. That meant I didn't have to get close to them. I didn't have to waste ammo I was using on something else. And I didn't need to worry about them at all. So even weapons you're not using, there's going to be a use for them if you choose. Um, and I think that's that's true of all of the weapons. There's a fairly small set of, of weapons, really, in this game. Um, the grenades, I didn't find that with, I have to say. The recycler charge was my go-to, just my default. If I'm going to be using a grenade, it's probably a recycler charge, and I'm probably using it to clear a path. Um, other than that, I didn't use as many of the grenades as probably I should have. Um, how about you guys? Were there weapons mm. that you felt were just way more useful than others, or not so useful? I had the same um, same experience with the grenades, where the recycler charge is very useful for path clearing, and you. I mean, it's sort of useful against enemies, but nothing too big. There are a lot of points where I was trying to use it against the the big sort of floating telepath and the techno. Yeah, yeah. But when you first come across them, they they feel very overpowered compared mm. to you. And I thought, oh, the recycler charge is brilliant because surely that I mean that can't not just be a one hit kill. That's you know sucking the matter out yeah. of the air and turning it into thing. But it actually didn't do as much as I was hoping no. for. 
Um, and then the other three, the EMP charge had its potential uses again, mainly against um, you know the flying uh, corrupted operators. Yeah. But the other two, the null wave transmitter, I wasn't ever really that sure what the null waves were, um, what that was, what that was doing. And the yeah. Typhon lure had a few purposes where there were very large groups of mimics to sort of draw them away from you in a few locations. But yeah, unfortunately, I found all of those to be less useful than they could have been especially mm. you get so many of them there's emp charges blooming everywhere dotted about the game and i yeah. frequently had more of them in my inventory than i knew i was ever going to use <laughs> so i started i started recycling <laughs> and keeping well, a stack just in case yeah yeah i think that's one of the key things because you can craft so many of your you know you sure. throw so many things into a recycler you craft your resources from the four key crafting elements um obviously the recycler does create those as you mentioned um, very useful if you want to just throw something in uh, crew quarters, for mm. example. If you throw one, you'll create loads of resources to build because you take out all the tables and chairs and turn them into stuff. They're very good against mimics. Um, the EMP I used quite a lot against uh, the likes of uh, Volate Typhons um, yeah. to neutralize their electric shock, and, so that the, the, and then I would run up to them and smash them with the shotgun. Yeah. Um, and I used the null wave transmitters, which were really good. Um, against enemies that were sending out, you know, shockwaves. Um, but they were also any of the humans that were being controlled, mind-controlled, if you threw the null wave, it would make them unconscious, so they yeah, wouldn't okay. basically, bl- the, their own heads wouldn't explode. But that's, I mean, I used the uh, the disruptor. The stun um, gun, yeah, yeah. The yeah, basically gun, yeah. I used that for them. There's also a Typhon... Uh, power that does essentially the same thing. I can't remember yeah, what it's yeah, called. It yeah. might be Mind Jack Psych- or something. Psych- that uh, yeah, puts Mind them to Jack. Sleep and, immediately. And that leans into what Carl, you were saying about there's even if you've gone down one particular path and and you maybe are regretting some choices early game. Generally, even if you have gone down that path, you're still going to be able to do what you want to do with it. You know, yeah. you've got multiple different ways there. We've just mentioned of incapacitating a, a type of enemy that you might not know how to deal with if you don't want to be shooting human enemies they essentially just come up to you and then blow up um uh but no wave transmitters in theory nullify any typhon powers i assume they also work on you if you let one off right next to yourself and suddenly you can't do any of your typhon abilities it it blows your it blows your vision yeah. and you can't use any typhon yeah, abilities yeah. as you do it but it's also really useful against telepaths sure. because it stops them pumping waves yeah. out um, so each the only one I didn't use a lot of was the Typhon lure. There's so many other ways to grab a Typhon's attention. I struggled to see why I'd switch over in my inventory to to pick one of those out, to be honest. But uh, I'll quickly run us through a piece of form feedback from Simon Sloth, and then we can get into the powers and abilities. Because as I said, I did not equip one single Typhon power or ability with a Neuromod. I just didn't in the whole game. So... I, I have no in, input to any of this, so I'll let you guys go. So I'll, I'll read through Simon Sloss forum feedback. Simon Sloss says, Prey draws from some of my very favourite video games, and although never quite becomes the sum of its parts, is still a very, very good game nonetheless, uh, including Bioshock, Deus Ex, Dishonored, and of course System Shock. The atmosphere, setting, and plot were excellent. I found the game initially very challenging until I started making use of turrets. I spent the majority of the game lugging the same one around, which I affectionately named Trevor. I would plonk him in a corner and skulk around while he did all of the work. 
So when it came to upgrades, I didn't invest in any alien mods for the fear that Trevor would turn on me. I realise this made some parts difficult and closed off a whole dimension of the game, but I fully intend to replay doing the opposite. I can't really think of many modern games which I would consider a second playthrough of so quickly. All in all, it's one of the best games released in the last few years, in my opinion. Uh, thank you for that. So, uh, you guys, go to town on the powers and abilities. Tell me all about them, because I understand what they are, and I've made a list here, but I, I haven't put any points into them. I've never tried them. I think the first part to mention is that you pick up the ability um, to, to take on a Typhon's powers at a certain point in the game, and you get a scope that goes onto your helmet, and you actually have to scan enemies, somewhat like taking photos of the enemies in Bioshock. Um, it would take a while, and then the more research you do on them, yeah. the more abilities you get to unlock. But as Simon Sloss already alluded to, you do lose certain benefits of no longer being um, 100% human. So turrets and stuff will turn on you. Yeah. Um, uh, as a result of my uh, my very first playthrough, I chose uh, to have a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Very carefully, it meant that turrets were basically not as useful. I didn't have a Trevor, <laughs> um, unfortunately. Uh, but on my, my most recent run-through prior to this podcast, I've gone... Uh, absolutely zero uh, Typhon power for the, for that reason yeah. um, to try and utilize things like turrets. So I'm also fairly similar with what you guys have both just said. I did my first playthrough of the game where I was very invested in everything. I think the point where you pick up the psychoscope and it, the game sort of pushes you to start um, uh, researching Typhons and even has a few Typhons in sort of uh, tanks that you you can scan, and then Alex, who's in game, he's your character's brother, but he's sort of an antagonist throughout it. You're constantly trying to find him, and he's pushing against what you're doing. You don't really understand why he's telling you, "Oh, you you should you know this isn't great, but you can you know now equip the Typhon neuromods as yeah. well." And um, another character who happens to be, uh, I suppose it's an it's a operating robot but it's one that you've given a previous uh sort of mind scan of your consciousness to who knows more about what's going on in the world than you and has been kind of leading you through what you should be doing they very specifically come across your intercom and tell you i mean you can do this but it's sort of a dangerous path to tread down and you know you start to become less human and more sort of integrated with the aliens and i got to that point and i thought yeah, I'm also not sure about this. This sounds like it might be a bad idea. You know, I don't want to lose my humanity for the what seemed like, you know, looking at it at a glance, you can start seeing the the Typhon neuromods, um, you know, the abilities quite quickly. It seemed like it was sort of convenience over humanity. In effect, there were a lot of powers that looked like they would be very, uh, very probably very fun to play around yeah. with, but also potentially create a very overpowered character who can you know just sort of send out a shockwave that destroys enemies and sort of burst heads and do all the things that they've been doing to you um so i i did the entire playthrough of my game without equipping a single typhon neuromod and then i went i went and did my second one where i was quite keen to see what would happen if you did the uh played through the entire game without any neuromods at all to see how possible it was and how difficult it would be 
And then after I'd finished that, I went back and reloaded a save file from maybe halfway, three quarters of the way through the game where I'd, I'd not had any neuromods at all, but I knew I was going to try them out. So mm -hmm. I was hoarding the, um, hoarding the neuromods in my inventory. So I think I had, you know, 120 of them by the time <laughs> I got to the end of the game. So I just, I just went absolutely bonkers at that point and just equipped as many of the Typhon mm -hmm. powers as I could and played around with them. And it's, it's really good fun. You just sort of turn yourself into a coffee cup and you can use one power and then a second one. So you turn yourself into a cup and then use a shockwave power to blast yourself, you know, hundreds mm. of meters across an environment. And you can say you can do things that just sort of pop mind controlled humans heads immediately or knock things out immediately. You can turn things back on the enemies. You can use the mimicking ability to get into areas that you couldn't do so easily otherwise i mean interesting what carl said earlier about using the um the bolt caster to shoot through the tiny little gap in a window to open the door i mean i, I think that's that's very much a way that the game designed you to do it mm -hmm. but i think the more um the more obvious way that it would have wanted you to do that was often those little windows will have small items on the other side of them yeah. so you use the mimic ability to turn into the coffee cup that's on the other side of the door and then turn back into a human and open the door for yourself so it's it's things like that that are, i mean it's it's not massively different but yeah. they're a lot of them are, are just the flat alternative to you can earn hacking and get through this way or you can earn mimicking and get mm. through this way or you can you know, you can use the lift field to, you know, to move the boxes out of the way that you can't move with, yeah. uh, without the yeah, human sure, ability. Yeah. So they're very much kind of the flip side of that mm. coin. Um, the difference, I think, is that they're they're more wacky and they're more, in some ways, they're more fun to play around with. Mm. And probably, if you were, you know, inclined to create a lot of neuromods and and go down a pathway where you were using a a big combination of both. You could probably have a lot of fun and probably a pretty overpowered playthrough of the mm. game. Okay, uh, I think we ought to talk a little bit about the enemy types. I'm going to rattle us through another piece of forum feedback from this time GingerTastic01. After reading the generally favourable reviews, I decided to pick this one up once the Xbox One X patch came out. My initial impressions were strong, although the visuals didn't blow me away. I liked the design style. Whilst the atmosphere wasn't up to some of its contemporaries, I thought it was pretty immersive. Additionally, the guns looked and sounded pretty cool to boot. Great shotgun. However, the more I played, the more I realised I wasn't really enjoying it for numerous reasons. The Typhon design, which started out as interesting, shape-shifting enemies, soon gave way to bland, repetitive foes that only had a couple of variations to them and didn't really capitalise on the aliens' unique attributes. Additionally, the nature of their design made stealth trickier than it needed to be, as it was harder to ascertain which direction the enemy was facing. When combined with poor audiovisual feedback, attempting to do stealth more often than not ended up in a gunfight, which is a shame, because it became apparent whilst trying to complete side missions that I was burning through more resources than I was getting. This issue is only exacerbated by the respawning enemies in highly travelled areas, leaving me with a somewhat frustrating experience. The resource management didn't seem as balanced as a good Resident Evil, Bioshock or Evil Within. Full disclosure, I didn't finish the game. It's very rare I don't finish a game, but ultimately I have saved myself into a hole from which I cannot get out. 
I know I'm close to finishing it, but trying to get from one side of a heavily infested Talos one to the other with little to no resources has left me with little to no motivation to finish it. I find that quite interesting mm. um, for numerous reasons, because they're not issues that I encountered. Mm-hmm. So we do have respawning enemies, yep. but not respawning that when you leave an enemy at an area and come back, it's populated again. No. We see it where it may repopulate once when the story or goes, in the yeah. case of, yeah, or in the case of the Arboretum, uh, two more respawns. Um, the resource management as well is controlled entirely by you throughout, so that it involves looking in um, containers and boxes and on shelves and actually fabricating stuff yourself. So uh, you can also use things like the recycler charge um, to be able to actually create things into resources to be able to build stuff. So um, I understand that they've got themselves into a position that they feel like they can't get out in terms of resources, but yeah. you can actually just create your own. Yeah, I found so... Uh, I, I tend to hoover up all this stuff, and unlike, say, um, a Fallout game or Skyrim, where I end up picking up a load of junk and there's really not that much to do with it, like, there is some stuff in those games you can sell, but there's plenty that actually you can't really do much with. Yeah. Um, whereas in this game, it did a couple of things that I really liked. All the junk you pick up, it's it's marked in your inventory with a colour, it's grey it's gray background. It's marked as junk. And when you go to a recycling station, it gives you the opportunity to put all of that junk in and get a crafting material from it. Now, that might be just a step you have to go through to get crafting materials when you could just pick them up, but they also give you uh, an option just to hold a button instead of individually putting items in, and it will just throw all the junk in there. So there are plenty of games that don't give you that kind of um, UI shortcut that makes... It's a quality of life improvement there, I think. It's fair to say. Um, So the fact that you could do do that and there's another kind of couple of examples of how it does that where if you're picking items up and there's a large number of items there or you've opened a crate and there's several items in again you can just hold the pick up button down and it'll just pick everything up and as long as you've got space in your inventory for it it just hoovers that all up and then you don't I, i've very rarely found myself having to kind of muddle my way through what was in my inventory and what i had etc it was i got into this sort of rhythm of of pick up, recycle, and then go and craft. And it, it worked really smoothly with that. We have talked about a lot of the different gameplay. I think it's worth just mentioning. A, so enemy types that stand out in this game, they all kind of do follow a theme. And we've heard previously someone say that they do kind of start to feel like they're all just iterations around a theme. But the the mimic enemy, I think there's a reason that was used so much in the marketing. This small like looks i guess a bit like a um a face hugger type enemy it's it's a four-legged black spider looking thing fairly sort of dog-sized i suppose running around that can turn into objects in the environment that's a really cool conceit i think and it's one that i think most people will be familiar with whether or not they've played the game um but there's another enemy in this game that i think there's a really cool conceit around as well that more than one but one in particular and it's not the smallest enemy in the game like the mimic it's actually the pretty much the biggest it's not technically the biggest but it's the biggest you're encountering as an enemy which is the nightmare which part way through the game uh and january will actually tell you it's because you've used typhon mods which is not true um it will come up whether or not you use typhon mods 
the the enemy that hunts you through the space station is the nightmare it is giant and it will appear and when it, it it can appear in most environments even if it looks like an environment that might be too small and when it does there is a countdown starts um and that countdown will it will pursue you until that countdown ends at which point it will not have found you and will kind of disappear and go elsewhere um i never tried to fight this thing uh whenever i saw it. i just ran hid and got out of its way pretty much um including just diving through uh, a loading screen area transition to get away from it i had a couple of uh, points where when it first showed up it absolutely scared me to death yeah. i think it was when i came out of somewhere like the arboretum for one of the first times yeah, when yeah. you get the the elevator that takes you back from the arboretum down into the lobby which is you're looking at probably 25 hours into the game sure. back down to the area that you started in and the elevator gets down to this area that you're very familiar with and at that point you haven't been there for a long time because the ship has been kind of closed off a little bit and you come back through and suddenly that that main lobby is populated with enemies who you didn't know you know you hadn't been introduced to when you first came through mm. but it's now filled with cystoid nests and there's a weaver in there who's a big enemy who flies around and I think they create the cysts and things. And I came down that elevator shaft. And as I was coming down this, it's probably sort of a 15, 20 second long. Yeah. It's not a cut scene, but it, it forces you into the elevator. The doors close. It starts moving. It's got a big, you know, it's a big glass elevator box. You can't pull out any of your weapons or anything. No. And as it descended into the lobby, this story mission, it calls it pops up on the screen saying, <laughs> you know, the nightmare, yeah. you know, def uh, destroy your escape from the nightmare and it pops up with a big countdown timer and the elevator came down to this you know the the ground level you have to actively press a door a button to open the doors in front of you and i saw this massive typhoon it must be you know it's probably 20 feet tall it's essentially i mean the the phantoms are roughly human sized and human shaped just yeah. kind of uh sort of black shadowy type enemies sort of tenderly shadowy type enemies but they're very they look very human like the nightmare is essentially you know one of those but sort of three or four times the size yeah. this massive great thing that's firing huge energy blast and the sound design around it's incredible it screams at you and when it's when it's in the area the music really pumps up and is playing in the background and i just got to the bottom and this countdown time was there and the nightmare was standing outside the elevator mm. doors, and I could see about half of it because the other half then sort of disappeared off the top above, of the yeah. screen. And it obviously knew that I was in this elevator, and I saw these energy blasts that are coming towards me and popping all around. And I thought, well, I'm in this elevator. This is, you know, I mean, this is cheating here, really, but this elevator is kind of a safe space in the game. I can't even pull out a weapon and do mm. anything. His attacks aren't hurting me, so he's firing these blasts directly at me, and they're just smashing off the glass. And I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not bloody going out there. I'm just going to die immediately. I opened those doors. I'm, I'm a goner. So I just sat there and waited for it to disappear. And I think that encounter put the, you know, put the fear of um, fear of death into me so much that the next time it popped up, when I went back through another area, it seems to enjoy coming in the um, the arboretum quite frequently. I think I saw it there three times throughout the course of the yeah, game, and definitely. only maybe one other time somewhere else. And, you know, we talk about the the spawning reasons for it, um, but it it appeared, and each time I just thought, well, I mean, I'm not going to be able to kill this thing. It's a story mission. It's you know, part of it is I could I could just escape if I wanted to, 
And I think it took me until the third try before I even tried attacking it. And then suddenly realized, actually, it's it's not really that much stronger than some of the other larger enemies. I think yeah. I, I went for it in the end. And by that point, I had a fully upgraded shotgun mm. and uh, health was at full max and suit powers were all at max. And I could use the little slow down time thing that then uh, you know, increases your damage. And I actually managed to destroy it pretty easily yeah. only with maybe seven or eight close range shotgun shells and i kind of realized oh maybe it maybe it never was actually that difficult and it just you know it seems so scary yeah. um but it, i mean it does a good job of selling the fear oh yeah, yeah with definitely. The, with the sound and the look and it has great animations the way if you go in a tight tunnel and it bends down it starts crawling mm. its way through the tunnel mm. after you see i didn't um, realize it could do that at one point very late <laughs> on in the game I came back into the lobby and it appeared in the middle of the lobby and I ran up the staircase and went into into um, Morgan's office, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's through a couple of very human-sized doorways and I thought, oh, that's fine, you know, this thing won't be able to do that. It's just going to be, you know, plodding around in the middle of the lobby and it might see me and fire shockwaves at me. It came up the stairs through these couple of doors and then started attacking the... Um, the two NPC characters who are hanging out in the office. And that really, I really wasn't expecting that yeah. to happen. That was pretty terrifying. It started attacking yeah. the doctor who sort of cowers in the corner. Yeah. It, it, the nightmare is a great enemy. It's not as terrifying to fight as you think it's going to be, but sometimes you are better left just running, um, getting back through a, diff- a different load screen and it won't follow you through a load no. screen. Um, another enemy I was a big fan of was the poltergeist, which does exactly what you would expect <laughs> a poltergeist to do because it's a poltergeist. Yeah. But given how populated the um, space station is with chairs and tables and all these and books and you know lockers etc., everything that you can kind of be moved and yeah. you can't see it unless you've got your psych scope on, and it just starts throwing stuff at you and you get you kind of trying to get your bearings and hide behind a wall to avoid it because. It can very quickly do some serious damage to you in a small environment if if you can't quite figure out where it is and it's got a clear line um, of throwing stuff. And I still found those really fun to fight. <laughs> um, but the, I think the the master stroke of the game is definitely the mimic, yeah. which it was based yeah. around, where um, you can walk into areas. And uh, one entertaining story was I actually walked into the boardroom and there was like a floating speaker, a uh, phone speaker that should be on the desk. And I mean, we're, I'm 25 hours into the game roughly at this point, and I'm looking at it and going, that's such a stupid glitch. Like, as if there's a, like, it was the first graphical glitch that I'd noticed of this floating speaker. Yeah. So I walked up to it because you can pick it up and throw it across the room. And as the hand animation came on it to pick it up, it turned into a mimic <laughs> and jumped onto my face. And I, I, like, I jumped so high. <laughs> and I was like, of course it was a mimic. Like, why wouldn't I have thought that that was a mimic? Yeah, there's a couple of um, points like that where they're so obvious. Where there's there'll be two health kits on the floor just next yeah. to each other. You look at it, you think there can't really be two, and you just go up and see if you can get close enough to whack one of them with your your wrench before it turns. And I, I think probably my favorite little design touch, and it's a really subtle thing, is as I mentioned, if you go after the mimics and they go a little bit crazy, um, you better to approach things quite slowly. Mm. Um, you'll sometimes see them turn a corner. And then you'll hear them turn into oh, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you walk in, you'll see two items, but one of them will be on its side, and that's because it's changed into that item. 
say, a mug, and then because its momentum has carried it, the mug tips over, so you yeah. know that the one that's tipped over is the Mimic because it's done it in a hurry. <laughs> and uh, that is so subtle, but so brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely, hands down for me, the, the Mimic's kind of the one. There's uh, a lot of the other enemies. I, I get a bit like I was saying with the the um, the powers. A lot of them feel like iterations on stuff you might have seen in previous games, but the the mimic. I this was the first time I encountered anything like it. And walking into a room and seeing that like just shimmer in the at the side of the screen, and you know something's happened, but you can't quite because you've not come into that room yet. You don't know what's changed and what's new and what shouldn't be there until you kind of go up and start tapping things with your wrench to find out. Um, yeah, and you know, once again, it's the environmental thing where. You see this at the beginning of the game mm. where you're in a um, uh, in a sort of a testing facility and there's a doctor there sort of taking you through yeah. these rooms and he says something about, oh, you know, someone get and get me a cup of coffee. And the, someone brings him a cup out and suddenly he's got two cups on the table. And he sort of looks at it and goes, oh, my coffee's disappeared. No I thought you were getting here. me a fresh one. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, the mug suddenly turns into a mimic and attacks him yeah. in front of you. It's such a... Such a uh, a really powerful and very unforgettable little moment, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And instructive as well. It, you know, it's telling you immediately you need to be aware of your surroundings in that way. Yeah. All right. Time is against us. Uh, another piece of community feedback that I'm going to take us through, and then we're going to talk about our our feelings on the story, and that's probably going to be us. So, retrospectives from the forum says, "Hey, Pat from the Ret- retrospectives podcast here. Long time listener, first time poster on these forums." Prey is one of my favourite games and I wanted to share something about how I feel. There's a lot to talk about, but in the interest of brevity, I'll hone in on one aspect. When you play Prey, that's not easy to say, when you play Prey, it feels like you're building the ultimate modular Swiss army knife. You get to determine your skills, what you spend resources on, and how you plan to tackle the many obstacles that get thrown your way. It's not about playing solely with stealth or solely as a hacker but instead using the tools at your disposal in the right way. A recycler charge deals damage to enemies, sure, but it also destroys environmental objects and gets you resources. The glue cannon disables enemies, but also puts out fires, temporarily shuts off electronics, and gives you platforms to traverse across. Getting stronger in prey is about giving your character more breadth. As you gain neuromods and find new weapons, you gain new ways to deal with problems. You can turn into a mug to access security stations. A new fabrication plan lets you turn junk into the precious QB memo. Find a null wave transmitter and you can take on the big psychic typhon in the pool area. You learn what works best against the various enemies and environmental hazards and start applying the right tool for the job. It works fantastically for the early game and the mid game of Prey as you carve your own path through the station. But as you enter the end game and complete that Swiss army knife, it starts to lose its luster. Once you've figured out how to overcome every obstacle in the most efficient way and have the abilities and resources to do so, it becomes a bit repetitive. Nothing can stand in your way once you know how to deal with it. All the challenge and intrigue comes in figuring out the systems at work, and there's no grand systemic challenge to top off the game, just extended fetch quests and more elaborate combat. Okay. The story we've touched on, you start off as Morgan Yu, uh, either man or woman, um, and the game adapts to that pretty well, I think. It, it doesn't require you to, to have played, uh, to have picked either one. Um, 
you are being experimented on. You don't know why. You uh, break out of that experiment when it becomes apparent that the Typhon have s- sort of um, broken out of their in, in uh, their enclosures as well. And you start to learn that not only are you not the person you thought you were, but nobody pretty much around you, including your brother Alex, is who you think they are necessarily, and what's going on isn't what you think is going on. I I really liked this this story, but I have to say, the personal stories that I picked up going through interacting with people, but also the logs and everything, those are the ones that kind of stick with me more. Danielle Shaw, I believe the character's name with. Um, you, you learn as, as you go through that she had a relationship that fell apart through a lack of trust, but she's trying to gain that back. And then there's the you find out later that her partner in the time, in that time has, has passed and she's never had a chance to make up that, that story in particular, but so many others like it will just stick with me for so, so long. I really liked the fact that there is a grand story, but there's also personal stories happening all the time. Um, how about you guys? Was there any particular aspect to the story that you want to shout out? Anything you think it did particularly well? Definitely the side quest stories are the stories that I preferred. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard them described by some of our feedback as a little bit of filler, endless fetch quests. And whilst technically a fetch quest is a large part of the majority of mm-hmm. games and, and some of this is fetching, um, they felt substantial. And the side quests are not the kind of side quests that you're finishing in a couple of minutes. No, sure. Yeah. Um, some some of the side quests can run um, even, I mean, the majority you wouldn't focus on independently, but even then some of them can carry up north of an hour yep. um, just to complete one side quest. And they are substantial, and the story is pretty consistently excellent throughout all those stories. Definitely the Danielle Show one. Um, it's pretty powerful. I do like the story about the cook. Yeah, look at um, it. Yeah, yeah. Who, so who who the cook is, um, his identity, the backstory, the actual finding out the backstory of what's actually happening with the uh, the volunteers yeah. that are coming in um, to help for the uh, scientific research. Um, Ilyushkin, the, the story about Ilyushkin and uh, her father. I mean... To, to be honest, I really enjoyed all yeah. of them, but there's the, you know, the, the they are probably the three that stand out predominantly for me. Is the, uh, sorry, the four, the uh, the volunteers, Danielle Shaw, the the chef, and Ilyushkin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's it's easy to look at the, you know, the quote main story of mm-hmm. this with Morgan and Morgan's brother Alex, and you. You very quickly realise that the the one of the major conceits of this game is, or we've mentioned neuromods a huge amount. So neuromods in this game are they're a mind altering uh, injection that you can you can basically install into your head, and you can use a neuromod to learn abilities. And you know in the game, some people have used them to learn languages, or yep. you know learn how to play a piece of music, or you know learn how to get better at hacking, or get stronger or smarter. <laughs> But one of the conceits with them is that you can you can install a neuromod and then you can remove the neuromod. And when you remove any neuromods, it effectively 
resets your memory to back to beyond the point where you'd started using them in the first place or you know prior to you using them and you very quickly realize that your character morgan in this is someone who has clearly been using experimental neuromods and then had them removed so it's it's a fairly common conceit mm-hmm. to stories where you're playing a character who is essentially an amnesiac and you're obviously sympathetic to them because you know, that character is now you but you don't know what they've done in the past and you know what atrocities they may have yeah. committed and where everything ties together and your story with with your brother in the game with Alex mm. is him trying to push you to remember what happened and to you know fall onto the side of the corporation and what they're doing and everybody else and I suppose you the player is wanting your character to be, you know, more sympathetic and you're hoping at every, you know, every turn. Well, you know, I, I'm really not looking forward to the inevitable point where you find out that they were doing something terrible. Mm. And the storyline that, Carl, you bring up with, um, is it Michaela Ilyushkin? Yeah. yeah. Where her father was a volunteer who uh, your character, I mean, really almost pointlessly had... Killed during a testing experiment by a mimic for you know very very little actual gain at that point, and you find the you go back and find the tapes of it and play it for her, and you realise well I mean you're just a sort of a cold-hearted scientist just doing what you're doing here, and that kind of ties into it, and then I suppose you you start finding out those things, and you you decide whether you want to continue along that path or whether you'd rather sort of make amends and you know you can you can destroy the space station at the end which presumably destroys lots of the data that you were working on and uh various people can be allowed to live or die so it's i mean it's it's not a it's not something that hasn't been played around with in the past with the the main story and that's you know i completely agree with Mm -hmm. carl that it's the the character stories the side stories the interactions that you have with various characters that they have had with each other that you you tie into and people specifically like Michaela who really are just hoping that you will do better in the future. Mm -hmm. They're the things that stick more. And I think what's really impressive is that we mentioned the interaction with these other characters, but I believe the first interaction I had with a living character was over 20 hours into my game. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I realized that someone was actually alive on this ship other than me. And that was that. You was can great. see it in some of the terminals, uh, particularly in the security stations. They will have like yeah. s- uh, staff logs, and uh, a lot of those you'll look at. You, you'll see no life signs, and then a tick next to it if you found their their body, um, and no check mark if if you didn't. Um, but some of them, very occasionally, you'll look down the list, and there'll be one that says uh, nominal or something. I can't remember exactly what it says, but it indicates yeah, that nominal. person is still alive, and it's just. You, and and it it does it holds that back that that you see that there are people actually alive and you speak to them and interact with them it holds that for a long time where you think you're alone with the typhoon and then realize no you're absolutely not and there are people to be saved on here um not just research to be saved or or a, a station to be saved or destroyed um yeah and i think one of the the great skills that the game has is that uh, the way it handles the story is that that's whilst it's fixed, there's a relative level of fluidity in how it can be interacted with. So 
you know, John's mentioned there that Alex is telling you to do stuff for the corporation. January is telling you to do stuff for the good of man. But then Alex is also saying, look, things aren't quite what they seem to be. Things aren't that clear cut. Yeah. And then you get the recording with Ilyushkin, uh, Ilyushkin's father. Yeah. And you realize that you're actually really cold and cynical in terms of killing them. And it's like, screw it, send it up to my office. I'll study it later, almost kind of thing. But then when you recover that recording, you also have the ability to delete that recording yeah. and then tell Ilyushkin that that recording was never found, like it wasn't a thing. Or you can actually own up to the fact that that was you and you're trying to be a, a different kind of person. And and that felt, it felt substantial at that point. Like you have yeah. that feeling of, do I actually delete this? And then explain that it was never a thing. Yeah. Or do I actually, you know, play it for that person and... Then you see sort of recordings that kind of blur the lines between good and bad, and things aren't really as clear cut as they seem. Um, that's really a strong element of the way that the game handles that, and it it treats the the side quests with the same respect that it treats its main story arc. Yeah, um, and and that feels like that's not a common element along so many other yeah. games. Um, that it's why I wanted to complete the side quests. And there are there are quite a lot of side quests, and oh, yeah. some are time based. Um, some you have to do, you have to be careful in in how you perform them, and uh, you, they're obviously optional. And yet they feel as substantial as the element of the main quest that you're on. Yeah. Mm. We have to mention the ending of the game, but we don't have a lot of time to do so. So. The final reveal, the final ending of the game, um, it's revealed that... So you're trying to get off the the space station and you have the decision whether or not to blow up the space station or whether to preserve it. Um, And based on all the things you've done along the way, whether you've used Typhon powers, you will, as Morgan, come round in a chair and Alex and four operators are in front of you and they start appraising your performance. And what becomes apparent is that you, Morgan, are now a Typhon, essentially. Um, you have, like many of the characters in the game, become a, a Typhon. And what they wanted to do was put you in a simulation to see whether or not they could teach or trust Typhons to exhibit human behavior. Um, and if you haven't performed in a way that they deem is humane enough, I, I believe Alex will, will shoot you and, and kill you in the, the experiments of failure. And if you have, um, Alex will turn you around and let you see why they're trying to do this. And the reason, the why, is that the Typhon were not um, confined to Talos and have in fact taken over large parts of, of the Earth. And they're trying to find a way to fight back or at least to coexist with Typhon. Um, I liked that reveal. It, it did feel a little bit kind of, and it was all a dream, and I've heard some people say that it's disappointing that none of what you've done mattered. I mean, I, we could argue that about any video game you play. It's all make-believe at, at a certain point. But I do get the point mm. that even within the fiction, what you're doing is is fiction, if that makes sense. Um, and so I get that, but I wondered how you guys felt about the ending. I really liked the twist because whilst you know something's happening, yeah. 
And the game never masks that. The game straight up tells you that things aren't as clear as you think they yeah. are over and over. January tells you. Alex tells yeah. you. <laughs> um, little things like things that you've seen already tell you in the environment. It's very, very clever about how it does it. And the reveal actually makes sense. It doesn't feel cheap. It doesn't feel like a cheat. It feels in a... I'm trying to think of the best way to word it without actually spoiling um, again, but it, it feels impactful in the same way Bioshock felt impactful yeah. with the direction that that headed. And Bioshock got praised for that, and I feel like this deserves at least equal amounts of praise because there's so much fluidity within the story throughout. You know, it's not a linear story arc. It is quite fluid in some of the decisions mm -hmm. that you've made at mm -hmm. that point. Um, and, I, and I feel like it handles it very, very well. And whilst it gives you just enough, it doesn't oversell what's going to happen before it happens, and it actually does feel like a surprise. And all too easy, that is given away, and you yeah. go, well, that was obvious. And I don't ever feel like when it's revealed in Prey, you don't go, like, you don't go, oh, I saw that coming a mile off. And likewise, you go, well, that's ridiculous. Why would that be the case? Like, I'd have known before now. Actually, the evidence is there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's points where if you go back and do a second playthrough, there are moments in the game where you're in, you know, your vision starts to sort of blur and you, it does, I can't, I can't really think how to describe it without having, you know, someone listening has actually seen it, but there are points where it feels like maybe your brain is fighting back and you're being, you know, you're trying to suck yourself out of the simulation. You see sort of weird shapes and tunnels. Mm. And there's a bit I very much noticed where it's it's almost as if your character, your Typhon in the real world in the chair begins opening their eyes mm. and you can see, if you know what you're looking for, yeah. you can see the four operators floating in front of you and you can see Alex standing in front of you. But at that point, you've got absolutely no, no idea what that is. That is sure, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you you wouldn't notice it unless you'd then seen the end of the game previously yeah. and, and, you, and you hear... Again, it's a voice like January is telling you, you know, things aren't what they seem, you know, don't believe everything yeah. that you're, you know, that you're told and what you're looking at. I think the the thing that it didn't, I wasn't tipped off to it in any way, but, you know, it's very notable that the game starts with a sequence where you're in a simulation mm -hmm. and you play through the first sort of probably 10 minutes of the game and the simulation then crashes and you come back out into the real world and it's very obviously this is the area that the simulation took place in. It's now very fake. You go through, uh, you see that the elevator doesn't really do anything. It's just a you know a facade for you know the the doors opening. And then there's in the in the simulation you've gone and got into a helicopter and flown across the city, and you can see where the you know the fake room with the helicopter is and the yeah, fake yeah. background that they've the been using all this yeah, looking yeah. Gra yeah. glass stuff, and that then. You know, it just plays a video on the screen effectively, and then the doors at the other end open, and you go into the the same area. So you see, you've seen all of that within the first sort of half hour of the game. That this is a thing that happens in this world that you can be put into a very very realistic simulation. And I had a a thing that bugged me throughout the entire game, thinking, I wonder if I do finish this, if it will turn out that this is just a another, you know a really layer. advanced yeah. version of that simulation mm -hmm. from the beginning. And I thought about it, and I thought, well. 
if that happens, you know, I'm not going to be upset about it. I'm not going to be disappointed by it because it's, it's is teased in some ways, but it's also not in a lot of other ways. And it could very happily go one way or the other. And I certainly, I didn't think to expect what actually happens in, in any way that it was yeah. that far down the line. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it gives you just enough that you think it's all going to be a simulation. Hmm. And it almost goes, go on, think that, go on. And then it'll pull it away, and then it'll dangle something again. You go, I, I might be, yeah, I think I am. And then it pulls it away, and you go, oh, am I? And it keeps that sense of doubt, and then it goes, bang, actually, this is what happened, and you go, whoa, did not see that. And that's that's a great way to handle a twist. Video games are always trying to emulate what we see in movies and books in terms of story writing, and it's very, very difficult. And I'm not going to say that this is like, up there with the likes of Blade Runner and stuff, it's not. But what I'm going to say is that it's up there with what is a good chunk of quite well-regarded science fiction writing in movies in terms of how it's delivered to the player. And I think that is credit to the respect that the writers gave consistently throughout this, like I said, with the side quests, with the main quest, with the story arc and with the characters. They're all treated that this is a living, breathing world these are the sets of rules of everything that's happening and everything plays out using that. And as a result, I couldn't feel cheated as a player when the story plays out. Mm. Yeah, completely agree. It's, it's the, it makes you feel clever for thinking that you're, you know, you're aware of the twist and then pulling effectively that twist, but on a much deeper level that you wouldn't have yeah. ever thought about previously. Yeah, it's it's sort of it teases and then pushes further. So it it makes you feel good about it and then makes you feel even better about it later on. All right. As always, we have your three word reviews. Um our Twitter account is at Canaan Rinse, and on the day of recording we put out the call for your reviews of the game in question in three words. And we have the following. I will kick us off with freelance police who says Incredible synth soundtrack. Uh, the Baboon Baron says, Zap, bludgeon, repeat. Andrew Elmore says, Beloved immersive sim. Tom Juice says, Gotta love glue. Uh, Mark Hoogland says, Two thirds masterpiece. Mehmet said, That twist, huh? And there you have it. Our summaries are all that are left. John, would you kick us off with your summary, please? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be very brief with this because uh, we've all spoken at great length so far about what's been going uh, through our heads with the game. Um, it, it's uh, very difficult for me to say anything um, uh, particularly negative about Prey at all. Uh, I think the the biggest problem that the game suffers, as far as I'm concerned, is it came out uh, at a possibly not ideal time in a year and a specific period during the year where there were dozens and dozens of very, very highly acclaimed games. And in some ways it's just sort of been, you know, been buried amongst some of the more popular ones, I feel. Um, I, I'm huge, hugely uh, enamoured with first-person shooters, especially anything that goes beyond uh, corridors and multiple weapons and silly linear storylines, as much as I love those games as well. Um, so um, immersive sims and uh, 
uh, anything with a little bit more depth to it, especially with when you then mix in sci-fi and horror and stuff. I mean, it's it's almost as if this game was designed specifically by someone who knew what sort of thing I would like to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'd love to see another similar style thing come out of Arcane. I'd love to see more immersive sims or even things that are more walking simulatory or another game set in this world with similar characters um i yeah i'm just absolutely overwhelmingly uh impressed with what the team here have done and the the world that they've created and like i said it's it's exactly the sort of thing that i want to play excellent thank you yeah i'll start off with a couple of things that uh that frustrated me a little bit i i was in awe every time i was in zero g i i loved looking around and and the scope and the scale of it but i never liked moving around in zero g it felt slow but also simultaneously con- like really confused and difficult in a way that it's supposed to but difficult to keep track of where you are and where you're supposed to be going which meant that i didn't really enjoy the combat sections in zero g at all um and likewise with the backtracking i i loved taking 40 50 60 hours to kind of learn my way around this space station but i still felt like there was an awful lot of backtracking that i maybe that maybe could have been taken out with it's weird because i I liked learning the station but i maybe felt like i was back and forth a bit too much um but that said i can't deny that the stories that were created the feeling of slowly learning that space station um and this game did something that i don't think i've ever experienced in the game and it may just be particular to me i don't know if this applies to anyone else i mentioned the opening hours of this game were glacial for me i was playing so slowly because i was sneaking everywhere trying to get surprise attacks or just sneak by enemies trying to find everything collect everything um but through the course of my gameplay that my pace of play got faster and faster and faster and faster in a way that felt like it was supposed to because i was building towards the climax unlike games where you find out there's a world ending event gonna happen and then you slow your gameplay down to do the side missions i felt like the pace of this game was was just fine-tuned to a way i've never felt in a game before where it just ramped up and up and up exactly at the right moments where i was wanting to move forward faster and faster um and that's something really cool that as i say i've never experienced in any other game and i'm never going to forget about my playthrough of of prey so overall loved it for for it warts and all but uh this game does some incredible things that i just haven't seen in in other games at all Uh, and and that just i can't but respect the game for and an arcane for for that uh, it was uh, it was quite something to experience all right carl would you round us off please i agree with so many of the things that both yourself and john have said regarding this game you know john's absolutely right this was released in 2017 that was probably the biggest victim of that you know it released in a year with super mario odyssey and legend of zelda you know we've We've even covered Next Machina, which was a game that I was playing at the same time uh, and around the time that this game had come out. And yet, here I sit two years later and I can't look past Praise being the best game of that year. There's so many things that stand out over so many other games. You know, 
the pacing is absolutely sublime. My first playthrough was north of 40 hours, and I can hand on heart say that there wasn't a single minute in that playtime that I didn't enjoy the world that I was in. And that's incredible, because I, I couldn't even say that about Half-Life because of Zen. I couldn't say that about something like uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which, you know, it's, for me, the standout game of the PlayStation era. And yet, I can't really find anything that I can negatively level at Prey. And it kills me that more people don't talk about this game in every aspect. This We see so many articles on websites about games like Zelda years after its release, and, you know, it's brilliant to see that. But this... I, I always felt like when I was playing prayer, am I seeing something that other people don't seem to be saying because I, seeing because I want to talk about this game all the time, and it's been quite funny because in the last two years, um, the Kane and Rinse Slack channel has been quite a lot of us talking about prayer because primarily I won't shut up about it, and there's a reason why I nominated it for this year, and I know Josh is a huge fan of it, and I know Darren's a huge fan of it, and. Um, Jay's a fan of it, and Leon's been playing it recently, and any of us could have stepped in to talk about the, you know, this episode. But ultimately, it was for us three to talk about, and it, it's been a pleasure to talk about because Prey feels important to me, having played it in the same way that Half-Life did, in the same way Bioshock did, in the same way System Shock 2 did. And, you know... For all this game offered storyline, the weapon design, the enemy design, the environment, which is one of the all-time greats for me, comes to the sum of its totals. And for me, Prey is the defining game of this generation. Um, it is genuinely my favourite game that I have played in so many years that it has felt great to talk about it. And I didn't know what James was going to say and I didn't know what John was going to say. It's hard to deny that all three of us are incredibly positive on Prey. Um, so all I can do is recommend that everyone who's made it this far through this podcast, if you haven't turned it off and you're still listening, go out and buy this game because you can get it for under a tenner. And quite honestly, that is an absolute steal. I believe it's in Microsoft Game Pass. So if you've got that, it's free. Um, yeah, what an, what an absolutely fantastic title Prey is. Please play it. All right, that's our lot. It only remains for me, James, to thank Carl and John, as well as all of our correspondents with some excellent community feedback, our editor, Jay, and of course, as always, every single one of you for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, or best of all, head to patreon.com slash and support our Patreon. All right, next time, issue 386, Leon takes temporary captaincy of the HMS Canaan Rinse, sea shanties and sandy shankings abound as Ubisoft brave the troublesome waters of a generational transition for Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag.